I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we look all over the Internet for interesting books, and we interview their authors. This week I'm very happy to say we have Marlene Zook on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. As I told uh, Marlene in the pre-interview, I have read several books in this genre, and I did a little biology as an undergraduate, and so I follow it quite closely. It's a great time to work in evolutionary biology. I think Marlene will tell you that because things are being discovered every day, and usually they are of the myth-busting variety. Unfortunately, a lot of them don't make it to the um, literati or cognoscenti or whatever we call the people who read and write the New York Times, and Marlene has done us the service of uh, perhaps speaking to them about some of their um, well, it's, it's her word, and I think it's appropriate, fantasies about the way we used to live. Uh, and so uh, this book is extraordinarily interesting, and um, if you have a kind of fascination with human evolution and the way we live now, uh, I highly suggest you read it. So, Marlene, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of ecology, evolution, and behavior at the University of Minnesota, and most of my research has nothing to do, in fact, all of my research has nothing to do with human evolution. I work on um, sexual selection, mate choice, animal behavior, and mostly in insects, but I got interested in rapid evolution um, a while ago because of some discoveries that we made in my lab, and so I've always been, and I'd always been interested more generally in how people think about both animals and evolution and the way it affects their lives. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because as a historian, I know that in the 19th century when um, I suppose the theory of evolution took hold, there's some places in the United States it hasn't taken hold yet, but that's another topic. Um, people were very interested in calling um, our distant ancestors brutes. They were brutes, <laughs> yeah. And now we quite admire them. We, we think that they were, there's something about them to behold and wonder at and maybe even emulate. And that is sort of at the center of paleo-fantasy. What is a paleo-fantasy? So I borrowed the word um, with permission uh, from uh, an eminent anthropologist, Leslie Aiello, who's the uh, 
head of the Weiner Grand Foundation, and she used it in an article in Science uh, a few years ago talking about the way people kind of make up stories about, in this case, human brain evolution. So she was talking about, you know, well, is this idea we have about how the human brain evolved really the way it happened, or is it just a paleo fantasy? And I thought, yes, that's a really wonderful way to think about this broader idea of our conception of what humans were like. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that because I know, again, as a historian, um, at the turn of the 19th century, there was a, even a, uh, of course, Freud and a lot of people that were interested in psychology were very convinced that um, civilization was making us sick, very sick. And there was even a kind of diagnosis for us. It was called neurasthesia. They would, they would claim a lot of people were neurasthenics. I don't know exactly what the, the noun is there, but the, the general notion was that the pace of modern life was making them insane. <laughs> so. Well, and, and, you know, and, and to some extent, you know, it, it was ever thus, right? That you know, the early Romans complained that kids these days didn't understand, um, you know, how life was supposed to be, and that everything was going to hell, and you know, so forth. And so, so in a sense, doing it about our earlier ancestors isn't that much different than doing it about how great life was in the 1950s or something like that. Yeah, I reviewed a book actually recently. I, um, I don't remember the author's name, nor do I really remember the. Um, the name of the book, but it was basically Civilization, Civilization and Its Discontents, which is a famous book by Freud, 2.0, and this one uh, made, the, made, the, uh, it made the argument that the instincts that we had developed in the era of evolutionary uh, adaptation uh, were killing us today. But they, were, they were very harmful, and they caused us to, to do all kinds of things which were extraordinarily detrimental to our health. So this um, idea, I didn't really like the book very much, to be honest with you, but the, uh, uh, th- this notion that uh, somehow, I mean, it has a kind of, mm, it, it, has a, it has a kind of school marmish moment about it. it. In other words, it wants to tell us how we should live. And what do the paleo fantasists <laughs> tell us about how we should live? <laughs> well, so, so first of all, I think that, that even that book and, and a lot of other perspectives, like what I was saying, that, you know, the ancient Romans or, or whatever, there, there really is some truth to this idea that, you know, you look around and, you know, it's easy for me to say that's not, at no time has that been more true than now, but I suppose everybody has always said that at no time has this been more true than now. And, and you think, gee, our modern world seems really mismatched to the way it was even a short time ago, and in a manner that doesn't seem like, as you say, it's very healthy for us. So, you know, it's easy to think, surely we were not meant to, uh, you know, spend all of our time crouched over little tiny, you know, electronic screens, or to never go outdoors, or to eat incredibly processed calorie-dense food that's available all the time. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, that's a pretty easy call. This is not how human beings evolve, and it's a, it's a really recent innovation, and you can point to places where it's not terribly good for us. At the same time, that's really, you know, saying that and observing that is really different than making the next leap and saying, and therefore, the only thing we can do to, you know, sort of cure the modern malady is to go back to doing what people were doing at some other point in time. And, and my interest in it is not so much prescriptive. I mean, I, I keep telling people, you know, I didn't write a diet book. The book is not, you know, about what people should eat. Um, I'm not trying, you know, I mean, there's plenty of books. If you want a book that will tell you how you should eat, there are lots of those books out there. I'm not a dietitian. I'm really not interested in that. I'm more interested in what this says about the way people think about evolution and how 
it reflects some misunderstandings about evolution that makes them not see, again, as you said, you know, some of this really new cool stuff that's happening that shows us what evolution is doing all around us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, I told you earlier that I talked to Greg Cochran about his book, and that is, and the thesis of it was that evolution is sort of speeding up, and we can talk about that in, in a moment. But I think there are certain facts, or I would call them factoids, that get into the public mind that lead people to perhaps not entirely erroneous conclusions, but uh, kind of truthy conclusions. They're not quite truthful. And one of them that you hear a lot, and you mentioned in the book, is that for 99 point however much percent of our existence since we evolved in the, you know, behaviorally modern humans, I guess, 180,000 years ago or so, that we lived as hunter-gatherers. And then just in this little, this little moment, starting about 5,000 years ago, things radically changed. So we couldn't be adapted to, say, urban life and agricultural life. So uh, how does that – is that a fact? <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I, you know, fact, and, yeah. and there's absolutely, I mean, that relates back to the, the mismatch idea I mentioned before, that there is absolutely this, you know, truth to, as you say, to the idea that we've spent a lot longer as human beings living in small hunter-gatherer groups than we have living in places like New York City or, you know, or, or even, you know, small um you know, but urbanized, uh, but urbanized places. So, you know, sure, and, and we certainly haven't had Western medicine around for that long and, you know, so on and so forth. But I think that unless you need to look at evolution as a continuous process because I think that contained within this idea of, oh, we've spent all this time as hunter-gatherers, it's like this idea that we were spending that time getting more and more and more closely in tune with our environment until we got to a point where we were perfectly in sync and then we could like heave a big sigh of relief and stop. And I think that that's a major misconception about the way evolution works because throughout that entire period, the environment wasn't static, what people were doing wasn't static, where people were in the globe wasn't static, what foods were available wasn't static. And so there's this continuous back and forth between organisms and their environment that's, you know, always been happening. And, you know, the point I, I sometimes make, and I, you know, I realize it's, it's you know, somewhat of an exaggeration, but so you could say while people were hunter-gatherers that, well, but, there, but the ancestors of hunter-gatherers had spent even longer uh, before humans became bipedal as quadrupedal, you know, mm-hmm. primates, and in a lot of ways being quadrupedal is really good for us. It's much better for our um, backs than uh, being, you know, bipedal is. Uh, childbirth is a lot easier. But, you know, you don't really think that people should have had this nostalgia during the you know uh, period before agriculture for the period before becoming bipedal and then those people could have been you know nostalgic for what it was like when you know organisms lived in the sea and you know and so on and so forth i mean evolution is continuous it's not like you get to this point and say aha now we're living in an environment where we're really well adapted <laughs> i think i thought that once when i was stoned in the 80s <laughs> only for a moment uh-huh. <laughs> so so I mean this comes to a kind of philosophical I don't know if it's philosophical I don't know what it is uh, but uh, and, and you um, you don't talk about this directly in the book but I know it's on the lips of lots of philosophers and biologists and it's the notion of fitness how right. fit an organism is can you talk a little bit about that because really this is what the this this concept is, is that bears all this weight. What measures well, of fitness it, yeah, are there? Absolutely, that kind of but idea? I think that is at the core of, of what I'm talking about, and it has to do with again a major concept about evolution that people sometimes miss, namely that evolution is not perfect. It's not going anywhere, and it's all a matter of being good enough. 
So that, again, you know, going back to, you know, the days before agriculture, there were still lots of compromises and trade-offs in our bodies in the way we did things, just like there are in every other organism and, you know, every other living thing that um, on Earth, in that you never get something for nothing. So that's one thing. So if you're going to use, you know, material to, say, make your legs long, then what that's going to do is also make your legs potentially uh, more liable to heat loss. So, you know, there's a trade-off there. So you could look at, say, a sled dog and say, oh, it's just perfectly adapted for running fast um, because of, you know, its long, skinny legs, which is true, except that having long, skinny legs also makes it more difficult for you to survive in a cold climate, and so there's other adaptations that have to do with the way the blood circulates, but the point is you can't ever say, oh, that's the perfect leg to have, because it depends on your frame of reference. So, so there's this endless series of trade-offs and compromises, and you know, it's easy to look at it and say, aha, it's perfectly adapted, but, but you really have to have a frame of reference, so that's one thing. The other p- point is that all organisms are, they're, they're not made de novo from something new, they're put together from existing parts. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people talk about how, you know, well, our genes are really old, but we're living in this time that's changed very recently. But but that's always been true. We have old genes. We have some genes that have changed very recently. You know, we have genes that we share with bacteria. We have genes that we share with, you know, daffodils. We have genes that we share with lots of other organisms on Earth, and we have some genes that have changed relatively recently. Mm-hmm. But if you just have a parts list, it's not really going to tell you very much about when, when you've evolved. Mm-hmm. And what's more, the parts all, you know, we're, you have to be constructed out of what was already there because beings aren't, you know, created de novo. They evolve from previous forms. And so we're carrying around a lot of parts that are, you know, not necessarily the best um, possible model because there are fish parts, mm-hmm. but we evolved from fish, so we're stuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. I mean, one of the metaphors that comes to mind in my own uh, work, actually, is the idea of design constraints. I mean, I do a lot of Absolutely. renovation, for example, you know, and you have yep. an old house and you're going to renovate it. Well, there are really only certain things you can do. Yep. And uh, there are lots of constraints. You know, you can't put this kind of window or that kind of window into it. You can't put these kinds of beams. That kind of wood won't work. Linoleum and and here, more, you know, you there. only have a certain budget and, yeah. and th- th- you know, you only have certain parts you're going to be able to acquire. So, so the way this is often put in evolution, and this is based on a, a famous paper that um, a Nobel Prize winning scientist, uh, Francois Jacob, uh, wrote um, uh, is that, uh, you know, nature or evolution is a tinkerer and not an engineer. Yeah. And so the point being that you're starting with stuff that's lying around the garage. You're not, you know, to make something, you're, you're not starting from a point where you have a blueprint and you say, okay, I now need to go out and manufacture this widget that will fit perfectly in, you know, that slot, and then I'm going to make that other part, and then I'm going to... That, that's not how evolution works. Evolution's right. a lot more like, all right, we've already got these fish parts. How are we going to make lungs out of them? Right, right. Or you put it even more concretely, the next car, whatever that's going to look like, is going to look a lot like a car. Right. If you yeah. see what I mean, you know, it's not going to yeah. look like a jet pack. You right. Know, it's going to be a car. It'll probably have a different fuel source. It might have a different kind of engine, but it's going to be a car. <laughs> you know, I mean. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, and I really do think that although people will, will, will nod and say, oh, yes, yes, of course, that makes sense, it's really hard to apply that when you think about humans and the way we evolved. 
because you do tend to think, oh, but when we were doing that, we were better adapted than, you know, when we are now. And, and it, the problem is it's all fits and starts and there's parts that are working well and parts that aren't and so forth. And of course, you know, you can make general, some generalizations and it's not like I'm arguing that, oh, because evolution's still happening, you know, people ought to be able to just, you know, eat whatever they want and, you know, live on, you know, Cheetos and Diet Coke and that that's not going to have any effect on your body because, after all, we can just adapt it. No, 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 that's, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. Right, right. I mean, I think, again, this is to sort of <clears throat> wax a little bit philosophical and maybe even personal. One of the most obvious bits of evidence that um, evolution, whatever it is, is not designed to perfection is human dissatisfaction. Whatever thing <laughs> or process made up, made us, it did not take into account our happiness because most of the time we are dissatisfied and uncomfortable. I mean, you just think about consciousness, for example. A lot of people are uncomfortable and sort of irritable and discontent a lot of the time. That does not make them happy campers. And it, I don't know if it makes them more evolutionarily fit or not. It seems completely extraneous to me. Um, but it, it definitely is an imperfection, and it's one we work on a lot, usually with drugs. Um, but not only with drugs, but also with things like you know Buddhism and things like this, because this is the human condition. However, it arose. It's it's simply you know it's simply a fact of our I existence, and uh, and to me that's the sort of strongest evidence of the thing. But in any event, Marlene, that's very useful. So we're still evolving. Uh, now let's go to cases. Cases you deal with in the book. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the paleo fantasists think about milk and dairy consumption, and tell us what we really should think about milk and dairy consumption in the evolutionary perspective. Well, dairy consumption is what I sometimes call the poster child for rapid human evolution because we know actually quite a lot about how our genes allowing us to digest dairy have changed over a very short period of time. So as everybody probably knows, human beings, like all other mammals, drink milk when they're very young, and then all other mammals besides human beings stop being able to digest dairy at uh, weaning because they lose the enzyme lactase, which is what you use to break down lactose, the sugar in milk. But in some populations of humans, that enzyme actually has persisted, enabling those people to be capable of drinking milk on into adulthood without the digestive difficulties that would usually accompany dairy consumption. Well, the reason for that is rapid evolution. What seems to have happened is that while well, people were herding cattle and other milk-bearing uh, animals for um, their hides and meat, uh, not for uh, dairy, but presumably in those populations, some of the people just happened to have a gene variant that allowed them to digest dairy just because, you know, you get gene genetic variation in all kinds of things. Well, in that case, though, the people that could digest dairy past weaning were at an advantage because they both had an extra food source that other people didn't have, and potentially, at least uh, as speculated by some scientists, they had a source of uncontaminated fluid so they could, you know, get water in effect without it being um, polluted or uh, carrying uh, disease organisms. Well, that then meant that those people that could digest dairy survived and reproduced better and passed on their genes for being able to digest dairy. So the number of people in the population increased. Well, then that 
encouraged in turn herding cattle. And so you ended up with this process that we call gene culture coevolution, where the practice of herding cattle is actually influenced by genetic changes in the people, but the genetic changes in the people are favored by a change in cultural practice, which is a really cool example of this evolution between two different species, really. And what it resulted in is people in different parts of the world, in parts of Africa, in parts of the Mediterranean, in Northern Europe, having a larger proportion of individuals who can digest dairy. Our genes have changed, at least for some of us, and they've changed in a remarkably short period of time, five to 7,000 years. The, the, really, the, the sort of icing on the cake here, um, which I think is really, really cool, is that the actual gene that allows digestion of uh, lactose, the, the specific change is different in the different parts of the world where it occurred. So it's like there was the same kind of selection going on that made it advantageous to digest dairy, but it was caused through, it, it comes about through a different process, um, which is, again, something that we call convergent evolution, and I think, you know, somehow makes the, the whole process even cooler. Anyway, the, the bottom line is that we have really changed. Our ancestors couldn't drink milk. That's right. It would have been bad for them, but we can, mm-hmm. at least some of us. That's remarkable. I did not know that until, well, basically, until I read your book, that, in fact, there had been this convergent evolution. That, that's, that's pretty strong evidence that... Um, having cattle around and drinking milk was a, a, a significant advantage. Well, and it caused us, you know, like I said, it caused, the, it caused our genes to change. So, you know, this, this is why I think that, you know, in effect, I wrote the book as kind of a, a, an invitation to look at how cool gene- genetic change through evolution really is, rather than just this assumption that, oh, well, it's just been too little time and we can't have changed and, you know, life is, is just the way, it, or life would be better if we were living the way, you know, we would have been living in the Stone Age or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Uh as I like to say, there's no free lunch in evolution. We talked about this a little bit before, tinkerers. And when we started to live with uh, milk-producing animals, uh, they, in turn, uh, often transmitted to us uh, diseases that killed a lot of us, so we had to adapt to those diseases as well. This is something Jared Diamond makes a lot of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, no one would argue, least of all me, that agriculture is an absolute, um, you know, unremitting good for everybody. It's I think you you can end up in this trap by talking about, oh, well, you know, was this a good thing to have happened to people or a bad thing to have happened to people, which is just not a very productive line of reasoning. Um, Absolutely, agriculture causes all these things to happen to people because we're living in one place, we're using a communal water source, we're passing pathogens back and forth, and those pathogens have a way to get a toehold that they would never have had in a nomadic small group of people. But to conclude from that that we'd be better off before that, just, I don't know, it, it just seems like a not very productive way to, to, to look at evolution because evolution isn't trying to get us anywhere. It's not like we're trying to produce humans version 4.0, um, <laughs> which is better than, you know, the humans version 3.9 that we had before we were drinking milk or growing crops or, or whatever. And, and uh, you know, as I say in the book, you know, where are you going to stop that? You know, you could say that being bipedal is not really very good for us, which, you know, at one level you could argue, yes, this was a rotten idea. Childbirth is, is you know, painful. Um, we have back problems. We have joint problems. Um, locomotion required a lot of tweaking once um, we became bipedal. But 
I don't know, is it worse for us than being quadrupedal? That's just kind of a weird question to ask. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the notion that somehow we chose these things consciously and that would, you know... Or, or that it was chosen for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It, that either we chose to do it, so, you know, we're, we're mindfully trying to evolve into some better form, or that somebody's, you know, out there pulling the strings. And, of course, neither of those things is true. Yeah, so that right. you end up with bipedal animals that aren't, you know, better, purer, or, you know, a, like a more advanced version than quadrupedal repeatal animals. They're just the way they are. The way they are. Yeah, that's right. So let's move on to another case, and uh, that is in Chapter 5 of your book, uh, Meat, Grains, and Cooking. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that? So, uh, again, it's really easy to conclude that since agriculture is recent and the reliance of uh, humans on grains and other starches as a food source is recent, that maybe we'd be better off not doing that since we might not have had enough time to adapt to those food sources. And uh, so the first thing is, you know, a caveat, which is that I am not arguing that, you know, we should all just happily live our lives on, you know, incredibly processed foods and that we really don't need to worry about, you know, what would be better for our body or, or something like that. I mean, I, no, no, this is not like a, a ticket to, you know, go ahead and spend your life sitting on the couch eating Cheetos, but, <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I know, you know, like you, you were hoping it was, right? Um, <laughs> but but at, the, at the same time, we can look at, again, what things have changed and what things haven't and ask the question of, huh, so is eating grains bad for us? Did early humans do that? Um, when did that start and, and what does it mean? So, for example, in uh, 2010, um, anthropologists got really excited because it, it was discovered that uh, early uh, humans and human ancestors had, in fact, been grinding um, grains at this uh, sort of seed part of a kind of cattail uh, on stones and using that apparently to make what, what every single news source uh, referred to as a primitive uh, form of pita bread. I'm not quite sure how they all can converged on that as a way to explain it, um, you know, rather than, you know, they, I, and, and, you know, who knows, of course, what they were really like, were they like crackers? I don't know whether they were like pita bread, but everybody decided they were like pita bread. Um, anyway, and, and consuming those, and so that suggested that, huh, maybe um, we started using uh, starch, uh, starchy foods earlier in our ancestry than had previously been thought. Um, and, and for me, the the point was really not so much, you know, when exactly did we start using grains? Because that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's an interesting question, but, but from, from the point I'm trying to make, it's, it's, it's a little bit peripheral. The, so the point is, is more, huh, so why might we have had this real switch in, say, our ability to digest dairy and maybe a more gradual change that might be slower or more incomplete in uh, our ability to deal with uh, uh, grains? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that just seems like a more interesting thing to pursue again than, okay, let's find out what everybody was eating a long time ago and just eat that. Yeah, and it's hard to have po positive evidence of that uh, genetic transition because there are no more, no, we're the only hominins that survive. Yeah, although, you know, one thing people can do, which again is a really cool tool available to us now that wasn't available even as little as maybe 10 years ago, is to be able to get infor is uh, the ability to get detailed information about the genome and to compare gen very small genetic changes and differences among, say, people with different ancestry, because that's what happened with the milk, uh, the ability to digest uh, dairy, for instance. And even with starches, we have some evidence that people who ancestors relied more on grains in their diet have more copies of the amylase gene, which is used mm -hmm. to digest starches than people whose ancestors did not. Mm -hmm. um, 
again, it's you know, it's, it's not quite as like okay, you have an on-off switch almost with lactase persistence. Um, but still, you know, it's clear that we've we've evolved in that direction as well. Uh, part of the problem too with the uh, how much meat versus how much uh, grains did we eat is that it, it's really clear that people ate different things in different parts of the world and at different time periods. So that there really isn't one single diet that is the way everybody should be or was eating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to further complicate things, as you point out in the book, the meat and grains that. Uh, our distant ancestors ate or did not eat are not the same meat or grains that we are eating today because they evolved too. Yeah, and I mean, we've made them evolve. So so there's been a lot of interest in, you know, heritage, um, you know, varieties of or heirloom varieties of various types of crops or uh, fruits or, or other um, things that people are eating, and uh, for that matter, and, you know, the degree to which different kinds of uh, animals uh, differ in the n- nutrients they provide. You know, is grass-fed beef um, better for you than uh, you know uh, uh, farmed uh, cattle and and so forth? But other than being able to, there are a few foods, of course, that are pretty much unchanged because we haven't been farming them. And there's um, and you know you could argue certainly that hunting your own game would be a way to get foods that are at least really similar to what we had a long time ago. But otherwise, we've changed so many of our I mean, by, by definition, by through agriculture, we've changed our crops enormously. And, and you know, Michael Pollan in one of his books um, talks about uh, you know biting into the, the ancestor of an apple and and you know spitting it out immediately because it was like he's got this, this great, very flowery description of you know how bitter and horrible and and nasty it was, um, and how you know the the ancestral forms of most of the the foods we think of as being very natural are very different from what we're eating. What we're eating now. So the ancestor of corn, to Sinte was very different. The you know ancestors of you know all the fruits had much lower sugar contents and were much smaller, um, and so forth. That's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, all very interesting. But you shouldn't just go out and live off Big Macs. That's. Yeah, no, right, yeah, no, I, like I said, I, I, I did want to, you know, like this, this is not a, an intent to, yeah, sure. uh, you know, give, give people lies. And, I, you know, and, and, and the real point, and, and I do think there are some people doing this, you know, and I'm not suggesting that every single person who's interested in what they want to call a paleo way of uh, eating or, or living or whatever is, you know, unswervingly sticking to some, uh, you know, extreme form of, of what they think people literally were eating in the Pleistocene, you know, but... So, so they're, they're they're just just an interest in potentially you know less processed food, which is probably good for us mm-hmm. all around. But the point is that what you want to do is say, huh? Well, maybe our bodies would do better on food that's got characteristic X, Y, or Z, whether that's being less processed or, you know, if you want to test the idea that we'd be better off not eating any uh, starches or, or what have you, and then go ahead and get the data. So, so you know, use this information about human evolution as kind of a jumping off point rather than a prescription. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was going to say that there are some supplements that I suppose used to be produced by um, the cells of our distant ancestors, but as I understand, they are no longer produced because they were so uh, common in the environment that it didn't make sense for them to be produced anymore. And these supplements are often added to a lot of foods, and we don't think it's bad at all. I mean, I know if you pick up a breakfast cereal, it's got tons of vitamins and minerals, and it's got iron in it, so you don't 
become iron deficient and that kind of thing. That's not bad, is it? I mean, well, I, I mean, again, the point is, you know, you have to remember that it's not like there was anyone out there saying, "Oh, wait, wait," you know, people have to have a perfect diet. So I'm going to make sure that either their cells, you know, that, that their cells produce this stuff. But now I see that, in fact, their cells don't need to produce it because mm-hmm. they seem to be. You know, that that's kind of not how evolution works. Right. And there, there are a lot of places where, you know, we're um, deficient in something that you know. I mean, it really would make a much better idea for. It really would be a much better idea if um, we didn't have to balance skin cancer against getting enough vitamin D. Right. But, you know, nature just did not do that for us. Yeah, but it's all balance. There's just all balance. So, anyway, let's go on to a, another one that, about uh, paleo fantasy, and that is about exercising. We run around a lot now. We're all told to run and lift and, and jump around and jazzercise and this other stuff. Uh, is there any basis to any of that? Should we be doing that? <laughs> again, not a license to sit on the couch. Um, <laughs> so sure, I mean, I, you know, and again, it doesn't take. You know, I, I'm certainly not the, the, the first, only, or uh, you know, by any means the uh, a novel person in suggesting that it really it does seem like people are lit, leading a very sedentary life now, and that that is not good for our bodies. Um, from an evolutionary perspective, there's an interesting question of, huh? So you know, what kind of exercise or you know, fitness or what have you were our ancestors getting. Um, obviously, they were not taking exercise classes um, and, you know, they, they weren't, you know, being taught how much they need to do cardio versus, you know, other mm-hmm. forms of exercise a day. Um, and one of the interesting things that comes up is, you know, take a, take a sport that a lot of people think seems incredibly unnatural, like running marathons. And, you know, a lot of people, including some people who are fans of the, the paleo lifestyle or what have you, would say, oh, no, no, what you really should be doing is uh, exercising in short bursts um, that would mimic, say, you know, running after a prey item, um, a prey animal, or running from a predator. But, you know, the marathon thing, that's, that's just really weird. Well, it turns out that some scientists have looked at human beings and the way they run and concluded that maybe our ancestors really did run, if not literal marathons, then certainly for long distances. And if you look at the way humans are built, if you look at our skeletons compared to, say, a chimpanzee skeleton, our skeletons have a lot of adaptations that make it look like we were spending time not just walking, but running. The way the head sits on the neck and is kind of cushioned from shock, you know, the kind of uh, back and forth motion that, that you get when you run, for example, and some, some other things about our joints and the way our, um, our muscles are, are connected to them is, is more like an animal that runs than an animal that walks. So, all right, what were we doing with all this running? The idea here is that we were running after our prey, not in quick bursts, because humans just can't beat animals in quick bursts. I mean, if you try and outrun, um, you know, a gazelle or um, your dog or anything else, and you try and do that for, um, you know, a short period, you're going to lose. But if you keep at it, humans can outrun an awful lot of animals as long as they can keep the animals um, from being able to rest because we can shed heat much more efficiently than most other mammals can. Mm -hmm. So we can exhaust another animal if we can keep after it long enough, and that's exactly what um, some scientists think. Uh, was going on, that mm-hmm. there was what was called the persistence uh, hunting, what they call it is persistence hunting hypothesis that suggests that humans were running, again, not literal marathons, but certainly very long distances to uh, after prey uh, until the prey, and keeping the prey from resting until the prey basically 
keeled over from heat exhaustion, and then you know you could go up and slaughter it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, sort of hunting by attrition. I, yeah. I, I once went. Um running with a dog. I decided for some reason I was going to go with my dog and I was going to go running. The dog lasted about 100 meters <laughs> and was pooped. And I was ready to go. You know, I was going to run five miles with this dog. The dog just wouldn't have any of it. So its, you know, its tongue was you know, out there on the ground. And I said, well, we better turn back now. Um, I should also uh, say that there's a terrific radio show about some of the early research that was done on the persistent hunting uh, hypothesis um, by a guy named Scott Carrier, who was the brother, I think, of the fellow who did the original studies in Utah. And the way he did the studies is he went and ran around the Utah desert uh, chasing antelope or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, David Carrier, yeah. The, no, the work is really interesting to read. And, and see, again, you know, I think it's really cool to think about, well, what were our ancestors doing in terms of diet or exercise or what have you? But, you know, then what you want to do is, you know, come up with, well, what do the data suggest? You know, would this really work? Can it actually happen? I mean, trying to get people to, you know, run after a gazelle until they can kill it is, is kind of a, it's, it's a tough sell. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the data are not that fabulous. And also, if you do it today, it's not still not telling you what our um, ancestors necessarily necessarily did but but there's there's some really intriguing stuff there yeah i go to the meat market to get meat <laughs> so uh, let's talk about um love and i'm reminded of uh something rousseau said uh in a book called the um i believe just called the origins of inequality or something like that and uh he said that in, in prehistory humans just sort of wandered around the, the forest and they just boinked whenever they wanted to that's, <laughs> now, that's a new that's a new one on me. I I, yeah. I had not I had not heard yep. that. Although yep. cer- certainly there there are versions that suggest that you know our ideal state um, would be one in which you know there was free love, however you wanted to yeah. imagine that, and you know everybody had lots of sexual partners, and you know we just didn't um, have the the constraints of culture or of society or you know of monogamy, which is really what they're talking about. Um, and there's some versions uh, of this you know idealized thing of our early life that have. Um, um, men being the ones that really, you know, they're the ones who are going to spread their seed and because mm-hmm. that's going to be more evolutionary advantageous for them, whereas for women, you know, they're going to impose, try to, you know, impose monogamy. Other versions say, oh, no, no, everybody would, was just, you know, having sex with everybody else and, and all of this other stuff is, is a more recent invention. Mm-hmm. But, so what's the truth? Well, I, you know, I mean, again, who knows? Um, because there, there's, <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of evidence left of early mating systems. But uh, one thing you can say is that sometimes these attempts to reconstruct our early sex lives ignore um, what what I've often, you know, said. You know, like pe- people are forgetting about the F word. No, not that F word. You know, get your mind out of the gutter. They're forgetting about what evolutionary biologists call fitness, which means leaving your genes to the next generation. And the reason that's relevant here is that you can't just talk about who's having sex with whom without considering the aftermath of all that sex. And the the thing that's going to provide the selective force from an evolutionary perspective, namely the babies. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to leave your genes in the next generation unless the offspring from all of that, you know, frenetic coupling manage to survive and reproduce themselves. And the only way they're going to do that if they're people is with a huge amount of investment by the parents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are not reptiles. We don't just, you know, have sex and then, you know, drop eggs in a corner and then go off and go about our business. Babies take an enormous amount of care. Mm-hmm. And they take an enormous amount of care from more than just a single individual. So, you know, single moms have always had it hard and they really need support and help and a lot of it from other people. Mm -hmm. Some of the current thinking is that humans evolved 
not as um, living in sort of this nuclear family with, you know, kind of an Ozzie and Harriet, you know, 1950s style, um, you know, version where there was, you know, or even even the just the mom and dad and their kids, but with several adults helping to take care of the offspring. Now, that doesn't have to be the father, but in many cases it is. And fathers really seem like they're adapted to taking care of their kids. A, a recent study even suggests that fathers of newborn uh, children have lower testosterone levels as a result of being in contact with their babies. And so mm. that seems to increase the levels of hormones that are sort of more associated with nurturing. Mm-hmm. And so it really does seem like, you know, people are are not just designed, as it were, to, you know, go off and have sex with everybody and not worry about the consequences, but instead to, to really give care to to their uh, offspring. Mm-hmm. Well, those new fathers, I can tell you, go and buy minivans, and if that won't lower your testosterone, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, so, so oh, an interesting study I read. I don't know that I, 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 you may not have heard of this, but it was an anthropologist who was studying childbirth practices all over the world, and uh, one of the things she concluded is that uh, um, human females really can't give birth alone. Yeah, I mean, or at least you know, certainly it, it's. You can't not just go into that- the woods and give birth. Yeah, it's not something that's found in most societies that, you know, both childbirth and the period immediately following it are a big deal for humans, and yeah. not just in, you know, modern Western societies. This is a thing for the whole society. Yeah. Um, Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy, who's a, um, an anthropologist at um, UC Davis, uh, has some, you know, makes some really interesting remarks about, like, which, what kinds of primates play, kind of share the baby, and which don't. And there's a lot of primates in which, once the mother gives birth, um, there's always interest in a new infant, but in many, many uh, species, there's no share. You know, you, you can maybe look, but you, you don't touch. In humans, like, who gets to hold the baby is a big deal in not just our, you know, Western societies, but in many, many, many others. And it suggests that there really is something to this business of, well, we are going to raise this kid together. You know, we're going to raise it as part of a community. Mm-hmm. And this does lead to a kind of, what should I say, uh, at least a, a, a moment that involves, at least to my mind, a certain amount of social policy, because we are very permissive about letting couples with children break up. Well, I, know, I know it's not your brief to actually weigh in there, but... Um, yeah, yeah, well, and, you know, and the extent to which, you know, kids get support from society versus from their parents, per se, versus from other people is, you know, it's a really naughty question. But I guess the the, the point is that it, it sure seems like kids need a lot of care from... And what what Sarah Hurdy says is um, not just one adult, not just two, but three. That mm-hmm. children seem to grow up best when they have three adults that they can rely on to provide backup and more backup and you know primary care. Mm-hmm. Well, they do. Ha- I mean, I know I have kids, and and I've seen childbirth a couple times, and I don't know how you'd ever do it alone. And uh, they do take a lot of time. Boy, do they take a lot of time. And, yeah, uh, you know, and, and, and the thing is, twas ever thus. You know, it's not like, oh, this is a new thing, you know, that because we're giving them, you know, modern baby toys or because right. we now have to teach them to read that, that kids now take more effort than they used to, that this is just a real, this is an inherent thing about humans. And so we shouldn't expect that we should have sex lives like bonobos because we have really different babies than bonobos mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I was talking to a fellow the other day, a philosopher, who said that uh, he was a very, in, in a sort of some conference, and um, this guy's a philosopher, he's a professional philosopher, and he was in a room full of people, and he, he reached the conclusion, they were 
working over various scenarios about, you know, what's ethical, if somebody, if two people had to die, you know, somebody had to choose them, that kind of thing. And he sort of reached the conclusion that he would kill everybody in the room if, uh, if it would save his son's life. That's an odd thing for a philosopher to say. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. I remember they have all those, there's the lifeboat problems and yeah, then there's exactly. the, the railway things where, you yeah. know, do you flip the switch, right. do you not flip the switch and, and yeah. all of that stuff. But, you know, well, yeah, but again, I don't think, you know, it is, it is not a surprise that doing something that will, you know, preserve your genes is going to be selected for. I mean, that's right. kind of the definition right. of, of what, what, what selection is all about. And so, yeah, of course it's going to operate through investment in offspring. Yeah, another really interesting thing as I did some reading on this as well is that humans are very good at recognizing their own children. And if you go to chimpanzees and things like that, after a certain amount of time, they're not so good at it. Well, so, so this is interesting because with humans, sure, we're good at recognizing our own children, but at the same time, we can very, very easily develop incredibly strong attachments to children to whom we're not yeah, biologically that's related. That's true. And I think but but I think that's easily explained because again, you have these social communities. If you have inside you that ability to bond really well with infants, chances are that ability is going to serve you well with infants that are related to you. But you've still got that ability and so if you spend a lot of time with offspring that are not yours, you're going to get really attached to them, and people do. And I, I think there's there's a lot of this, you know, I, I've always found it really fascinating, you know, this emphasis about, you know, oh, but, you know, who's the real, you know, the biological parent and, and so forth. And, you know, we're really good at parenting kids that we're not biologically related to. And again, I don't think that's necessarily a modern manifestation. There's certainly cultures that do and don't um, exhibit, you know, adoption more, but but that's you know that's an interesting variation to to look at in and, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But you know human beings you know and so so the other um, emphasis is sometimes made is oh well you know you have to have this bonding period within the first 24 hours or you know all is lost and it's like well human beings aren't like that I mean sheep are like that because <laughs> no I'm completely serious so so with sheep as as you know if. If anybody's done, uh, you know, work with farm animals knows with sheep, um, if if a mother um, dies, for instance, and you know the the lamb is left, um, you know, immediately after birth, you can get another mother um, uh, that's given birth to accept the new lamb as long as you you know swap it in immediately after and you know do some stuff with making the new baby smell like you know the one that the mother would have had and you know so on and so forth. But you have to do it within this very narrow period, or the 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 adoptive mother is going to reject the, the young. And it's, it's kind of weird because to some degree people talk about bonding in humans as if it's like that, you know, that, oh, the baby has to be with the mother, you know, absolutely immediately um, or else, you know, she's not going to be able to develop an appropriate relationship with them. And, I mean, there is some evidence about, you know, how milk production works in, you know, humans, and, and I'm not talking about that, but the idea that you can't develop an emotional connection with a baby because you haven't had this little tiny narrow window just is not the way people work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is the way sheep work, but it's just not the way humans work. And, and part of that is because of the natural biology of people and sheep. That with sheep, so if you were indiscriminate and you were happy to, to if you're a female sheep and you're happy to nurse any baby that comes walking along, you're not going to do very well. Well, that's because baby lambs can walk within minutes of when they're born. Mm-hmm. Humans don't do that. Like, you're not going to have a baby, and then it's going to start, you know, wandering off at age two days trying to get, you know, some cereal and milk from the lady next door. I mean, it's just not, it's not the way we work. So you don't have this really confined 
template for when we have to bond with our with our offspring. Yeah, yeah. The early yeah, infant humans only do two things, and one of them is cry. Um, sorry, <laughs> yeah, no, they sleep too, I suppose. So, but there is an evolutionary moment here, and I'm thinking about the transference of allegiance or or the kind of affection that people have for uh, the children of strangers, and that is that in the uh, evolutionary environment, uh, so to say, uh, you always knew whose kid that was if it was orphaned because you didn't know any strangers. Sure, absolutely. You know that that too. That you know, there it wasn't like there was going to be a kid. You know, that was going to be flown in from you know thousands of miles away. But I really do think that the, the underlying point is that human beings are absolutely evolutionarily adapted to take care of babies, yeah. both their own and and you know ones that that aren't theirs. Because it's not like there's a real disadvantage of to it, since as you say, those babies are probably going to be from their own community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And kin selection would indicate that they might even be related. Very possibly. Yes, very possibly. So let's uh, move on then to sickness and health. What do the paleofantasists say about that? Um, well, I don't know. I, I mean, one of the things that I was interested in with the, um, talking about uh, disease is that that's one of the best places to look for rapid evolution in humans. Mm-hmm. One of the places that we've that our genes have changed very, very quickly over just the last few thousand years has to do with adaptation to, um, or has to do with our evolution of resistance to diseases that have arisen since agriculture. So there's resistance genes, for example, to malaria. There's resistance genes to various other kinds of diseases that um, that arose since agriculture. The other interesting thing about uh, diseases is that people often feel like um, diseases that bother us. And so we, we tend not to think about a lot of infectious diseases like malaria or cholera or, or something like that because in Western society we're just not um, dealing with them very much. It seems like something that you know happened, happens far off or, or um, isn't something we need to think about at all. But we do think about diseases like cancer and there it's often suggested that, oh, cancer is a scourge of, of modernity, that, you know, this is something that we get because we have a polluted environment, we're exposed to toxins, we're, um, you know, doing something that people didn't used, to, didn't used to do. In fact, it turns out that cancer rates, to the extent that we can calculate it, and admittedly, you know, it's, we're only getting rough estimates, but to the extent that we can calculate, cancer rates were pretty similar um, in at least ancient peoples. We don't have a lot of good evidence for cancer rates in, you know, Neanderthals or, or what have you, but at least in the ancient peoples of several thousand years ago that we can find, their cancer rates were pretty similar to ours, discounting um, tobacco-related uh, cancers, so discounting uh, for the rates of um, lung cancer and, and uh the like. But so, so it seems like this is one of those things that's always been with us. Mm-hmm. How do we know that about ancient peoples? I mean, as a historian, I'm interested to hear how we yeah. know yeah. um, so, so one of the things you can do is look at um, uh, skeletal remains and look... So what you have to do is, is a, a fairly elaborate series of calculations saying, okay, there's, if you have this proportion of cancers that leave uh, skeletal lesions and the skeletal lesions are found in this portion of the skeleton and we've got this kind of a sample of skeletons which would have the opportunity to show those kinds of lesions, then you can kind of extrapolate forward and determine, you know, some cancer rates. And so that's why I said, I, you know, it's difficult to calculate, and we certainly don't have enough skeletons from, you know, actual ancestral, you know, homo to, to be able to, to calculate this. But the idea is that this, you know, cancer rates are not something that 
um, has skyrocketed. You know, people tend to feel like that because, of course, we have better uh, diagnosis now, and you know, we have better communication. So everybody knows someone who has, you know, had uh, cancer, and you know, most of us know somebody who's died of it. Uh, but in fact, whereas whereas in the past, we often just didn't know what people died of, and people would would you know have these very vague descriptors for for causes of death. Um, but in fact, if you can look at the remains, you can see that oh, okay, there must there must have been cancer involved, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a, a fairly uh, recent set of studies that looked at some data sets of uh, skeletal remains that they could get um, pretty complete data on, and looks like the rates are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Another thing you point out in the book is that one of the best pieces of evidence that um, we're not perfectly fit or adapted to our environment is that occasionally some sort of pandemic occurs and wipes most of us out. Yeah, well, I don't know about wipes most of us out. I mean, thank goodness, since you know Black Death, we we haven't really had anything that's that's spread through that large uh, uh, portion of the population. But yeah, I mean, I, that clearly evolution's still occurring because our pathogens, the microorganisms that um, cause disease, are also changing to be able to better take advantage of us. And so there's this unending, what's often referred to as as an evolutionary arms race, mm-hmm. where you know, and, and sometimes they get the upper hand and sometimes we do. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, within certain demographic groups, it does happen. I mean, I'm thinking of AIDS. Uh, were it not for modern uh, medicine and for uh, public health considerations, uh, a cohort of the population probably would, would have been almost completely wiped out by AIDS. Uh, very possibly, or at least, at least um, and certainly in Africa, there's, it's a huge source of mortality, um, you know, even still. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, so this is this is still going on, and there are places like hospitals that are, you know, they sort of breed these. People talk about these superbugs. I don't think one has ever gotten out, but you can see why a hospital would be a good place to develop such thing. Well, yeah, and as for you know, getting, I mean, they do get out. It's just you know, they have gotten out. It's not like you can't get MRSA, for instance, oh, MRSA, um, yeah. you know, out, outside of a, outside of a hospital. But I, I always wish that when people talk about these, you know, superbugs, or they talk about antibiotic resistance, that people were more conscientious about using the word evolution because you know they almost act like oh and somehow through some completely bizarre and unknown quirk bacteria now are resistant to penicillin and you know it's not an unknown quirk we know exactly how it happens and it's because of evolution mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know all of the you know antibiotic resistance they are not developing antibiotic resistance they are evolving antibiotic resistance and I've, I've always wished this is sort of a pet peeve of mine I always wish the newscasters would be a little bit more conscientious about using the e-word mm-hmm. so if i could sum up and say you know from a journalist point of view i'm not a journalist but you know the sort of takeaway from your book is that we are currently evolving and we have always been evolving and it never stops i mean you give a couple of examples uh, about uh, people who live at high altitude and earwax including the book but would that be a fair thing to say is that there's always a kind of imperfect relationship between the environment and humans, and there's this constant back and forth between the two. Whether they ever come much closer, and do we become more adapted or less, that's a difficult question to ask, but it's never a perfect fit. Yeah, absolutely. And and so, like I said, to, for me, that, you know, writing the book was more of a, you know, an invitation to look at some of these really amazing complexities of evolution, rather than to just say, oh, right, well, that whole thing, it's all stopped a long time ago, because we were great back in the days when we were hunter-gatherers, and now it's just all completely gone to hell because we've got a modern industrial environment. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, it really, there's a lot of really cool stuff there, and we can, we can learn a lot now that we didn't know even as little, like I said, as 10 or 15 years ago because of some of the new tools that are available to us. Mm-hmm. And evolution is still occurring because 
some people have more children than another. I mean, that kind of selection is still going on, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what... Um, so Mary Pavelka, who's a primatologist at the University of Calgary, um, and when she was interviewed asked and, and asked about, you know, are humans still evolving, she said, well, we should really rephrase the question and say, well, are all people having the same number of children? Yeah. And, of course, if they're not, and they're not, then obviously we're seeing differential representation of different genes in subsequent generations, and if that's happening, then we're getting genetic changes in the population, and we've got evolution. Mm-hmm. Well, everybody I know has 2.5 children, so it's, it's worked out <laughs> and, 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 and hopefully when you get together, the 0.5 can manage, you know, they're, yeah. they're not the same half, so they can manage to play. Yeah, exactly. Well, Marlene, we're, we've run out of time, and I, I want to I say thank you very much for being on the show, and I want to ask you our traditional final question uh, here on the New Books Network, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Um, so I'm actually uh, mostly well. The, the answer to most of that is my day job, which is that I am uh, I am a biologist. I work mostly on insects. I'm studying crickets in Hawaii, um, uh, and looking at actually rapid evolution in them, which is what kind of got me interested in the topic. Um, so so that's a, a really cool thing that's uh, that's uh, keeping us occupied. And I actually, in fact, just the other day, got an email from one of my co- colleagues, and it looks like we're on the verge of a really cool breakthrough looking at the genes involved in the. Um, uh, in this episode of Rapid Evolution. So, you know, science goes on. I, I, I will say, though, that the one chapter I wish I could have written for the book and didn't and maybe will develop later on is I wanted to write about about pets. I wanted to write about right. how looking at our, our domestic animals really shows us how evolution occurs. Yeah, because there you see incredible incredible variation. Dogs, for example, just truly yeah. amazing variation. Yeah, yeah that's so maybe, maybe sometime I'll get to that. Yeah, well, I hope that you do, and we'll have you on the show when you do. Uh, today okay. we've been talking to uh, Marlene Zook about her book, Paleo Fantasy, What Evolution Really Tells Us About Sex, Diet, and How We Live. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I want to thank everybody for listening to this interview, but I especially want to thank Marlene for being on the show. Thank you very much, Marlene. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.